0: Hello and welcome back to ACFM. This is producer Matt. At several points in the episode we're about to listen to, the gang make reference to the microdose we released to accompany this trip. However, they don't call it by its name,
1: so I'm going to do that now. The microdose is entitled Mothers of Invention and is a fascinating conversation between Nadia and the writer and journalist Katrine Marsal. It's available now up on Novara, so do check it out in good time. But don't
0: worry, It won't affect your enjoyment of what we're about to hear if you haven't listened to it yet. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as usual with my friends Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we are going to talk about the subject of technology.
2: Yeah, so I came up with this subject because I came across a book uh, by Catherine Marcel, and it had some fascinating stuff in it that really made me think about um, the relationship between technological development and gender but also economics Um, and just the really basic question of when we call something a technology and when we don't and how these things develop over history and it got me thinking about questions like the relationship of the left to technology and stuff around uh, technological determinism as well so I thought it's a fascinating subject so I thought something we might want to discuss uh, on our show so there we go.
1: I mean, the other thing, I suppose, is um, we've been living through a period in which a lot of our social relations have been mediated through technology. We're not in the same room today, of course. We're doing this via cast, and we've been having a lot of our interactions via Zoom and these sorts of things. Uh, I suppose that brings the idea of technology to the fore or, or about, or the way that technology interacts with our uh, social relations and therefore lead to other questions such as you know like why does technology t- take the shape it does what's driving the the, the the direction of technology what's driving the pace of technology you know are we in an age of technological acceleration are we in an age of technological stagnation I think we can cover all of those things in an episode on technology
0: I guess we want to start off a little bit thinking about definitions technology is one of those terms it's always really interesting to think about because typically certainly in my experience a lot of students if you use the word technology that what they think you mean is computing actually computing and maybe communications we use the term technology as a shorthand for those things because we've been living through a historical period when the most obviously new and socially transformative technologies are those ones but historically technology the term technology really can mean a much broader set of things we often think of it as meaning just the application of scientific knowledge to some sort of practical purpose but in a more general sense you know the french philosophers who were all very well grounded in their classical greek always like to point out and also heidegger the german phenomenologist of the early 20th century who wrote about this as well also referring to the ancient greeks they like to point out that the term technology derives from the greek techne and techne it has the same root as technique it just sort of means like any sort of systematic organized thought through deliberate way of doing things that isn't simply instinctual or organic the term technology can come to mean a general assemblage of techniques; it can uh, of any kind. So they might involve external devices; they might not do. There is other uses we can come back to, like which are related to these, like Foucault's notion of the technology of the South, technologies of governance. But I guess maybe the, if we think about the first of those first, the idea that. we think of technology as the application of scientific knowledge to a practical purpose of some kind and then we tend we end up habitually thinking of some things belonging in that category and some things not really doing that was part of the theme of your discussion wasn't it yeah
2: yeah i mean I think I think it's it's interesting what you say that I guess I, I mean it make, makes sense that a lot of young people would see technology as in related to you know like computing or software, which is like a massive technological development but in in between those definitions are some kind of hard material things, so to speak, which in a sense are quite simple, but over you know prehistory and history have had a massive effect on you know, the development of human human civilization. And the big one, obviously, is the wheel and then stuff like, you know, spinning thread or, you know, yarn and stuff like that. And putting the the spinning wheel, uh, spinning and the wheel together um, created a lot of advancement in society and kind of changed... Uh, economic models
0: when I, spe- I suppose one of the things that connects that observation about how students use the term to what you were talking about that interview with Catherine is this idea of technology as being the thing that somehow defines epochs of human development human mm-hmm. culture so it's sort of it's understandable that in the age that historians i mean historians are going to remember our period i think for two things really which is computers and the massive transformation of of gender relations that's what people are going to remember about now in like 500 years Uh, or if if civilization lasts 500 years exactly they'll they'll also remember the fact that it almost ended um so um but so that's understandable but the made that really interesting point didn't didn't she there's still this convention in naming earlier epochs of prehistory and very early history, in terms of what were supposedly the dominant technologies like yeah. bronze, metalworking, stone. But there were you could just as well have named the Stone Age, the String Age. She says, doesn't she?
2: Yeah, I mean, basically that's the main argument that she's making around. That's one of the central pieces um, in her book about gender is that there's various different technologies, but. But how history is written is, you know, like you said, associated with a lot, lot more with with hard metals and stuff like bronze and, um, and rather than ceramic or string, which both had massive impacts on, on how we developed other machines and processes.
1: I suppose there is the Beaker people as the as the counter example of that. But you're right you know string doesn't survive does it so the string people is not uh, is not going to take off and if we we tend to archaeology has got this bias towards what survives and so you have this bias to to privileging um civilizations which produce big monuments etc etc which probably just basically hides the the, the, the huge uh, the 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 biggest proportion of human activity that's ever taken place, you know, which is just social reproductive technology.
2: Sure, but you know exactly to that that point, you know, we don't call uh, I don't know whenever it was. I don't actually know this date, but we don't call a certain era the washing machine age or the you know mm. kitchen advancement age. And you know the inside of a kitchen yeah. and what it looks like now is is a is it quite a big deal. I think you were you were making this point here when we talked about it
1: yeah i mean per- perhaps we should call it the washing machine age <laughs> a, a number of people have made the argument that um you know if we think about technological developments through the 20th century the washing machine is is an example of a technology that's had a huge in- impact on, on people's lives perhaps more than something like the iphone and so perhaps we do need to change our perception of what the dominant technology is or what or how we think about technological change i think we think about Like you know, the the idea that something technology reduced to the word tech is synonymous with digital technologies, with the with computer technologies of some kind, is probably due to the to the dominant the sort of dominant dynamic that's that in technology has been like the shrinking of computers basically. Uh, which is dominated by this 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 concept of Moore's law, which is basically every every two years the number of transistors that can be printed onto a silicon chip doubles.
0: Yeah, that's what that's what's led that's what leads lots of Silicon Valley ideologists to conclude yeah. that the. The emergence of conscious artificial intelligence is in, it is, it is inevitable because obviously once you can get enough transistors on a silicon on a sheet of silicon, it's going to become self-aware. That's obvious. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I, I think that's biz- I think it's bizarre. It's a bizarre idea.
0: Well, it's based on not. It's based on a complete miss, a complete conflation of con, of the concept of processing information, pro, digital information processing with consciousness. Which they're but exactly not, they're not the same thing. No, I mean, they're not. <laughs> no. They're really, really no. not. Maybe we
2: should do a whole episode on that. But I mean, I can't press enough. I know. I know we've just talked about it, but like, I don't have a microwave and I don't have a dishwasher. I basically live in a 1970s house, but I have a washing machine. Yeah. What would my life be like if I didn't have a washing machine or access to a washing machine or a laundrette? How much time? You know, I mean, it's, it's so massive. And the fridge is another big one, especially if you live in a, in a hot country. It changes the economy of how you deal with, especially, you know, the, the rearing and, and selling and buying and cooking of meat. It's massive.
0: Yeah, it is, yeah. This is, this is one of those moments I'm always really conscious that not everybody got taught undergraduate history by feminist social historians, because I didn't... Because when you said it, I initially when you made the point about Washing Machine, I just thought, yeah, everybody knows that. Of course, that's, that's obvious, but obviously it's not.
2: Let's play the classic Welcome to the Machine by Pink Floyd. Uh, I love that song. It's very dystopic, but I do love it.
0: On the one hand, it's a cliche of historical anthropology and people who study material culture, that all technologies become, as they call it, enculturated or acculturated. So they become part of culture. They become part of the background. So we, we're so used to tarmac roads being all over the place that we just think of them as as just part of the environment because because that is actually how we experience it. We experience them as things that have always been there. We can't really imagine not being there. They're just there, even though if we stop to reflect on it, we might, of course, be aware that they've been put there and they have to be maintained, et cetera. And even really young people are sort of conscious that computing and mobile computing and all this stuff is relatively new so we're conscious of its technological status but then there's also the issue that even when we look back to the past and think about what were the, the crucial transformatory technologies it's it's true we don't we don't habitually not in well i think probably i think this is not true if people are say on a degree doing a degree course in social history or even contemporary archaeology where feminism have, has been really influential on the way these things are taught so i don't think it would be true to say today that I mean terms like Bronze Age, for example, you know, a lot of archaeologists are really sniffy about, like partly for these reasons. These are terms that were made up in the Victorian era. So when we but say they exist,
2: will, but they yeah, do yeah. exist in the common vernacular. People, you know, that's how they refer yeah. to time.
0: No, they do, they do. And the washing I mean, the washing machine is a great example because I, I think it's absolutely true. It just isn't really unless you're a special social history specialist it's just not part of our everyday thinking about what were the definitive events of the 20th century that the end the end of wash day as defining the week for most women who women in social classes where they couldn't afford servants and indeed the necessity of paying servants to do your washing for you if you were in those social classes were really they were absolutely definitive features of everyday life for uh, people of all social classes and and washing without a washing machine washing without a washing machine is one of those things like people re- I think people really don't get how what how hard it is
2: it's so hard like it was
0: really hard work. it basically was two it was generally accepted that it was one to two full days' work every week to wash the linen and laundry of a family of a moderately sized family. like and um, yeah, it's completely true that the washing machine is, you know, has been really it is a really transformative technology in those ways. Of course, it also raises the question of well who who has ended up fully benefiting from that. Because on the one hand, indeed the you know, women and other people have been liberated from the drudgery of laundry, but mostly so they can then have that have that labour power exploited by somebody else. Like
1: <laughs> um the, the other thing that I think has tended to happen uh, with sort of labor saving devices such as the the washing machine is you know sort of in the domestic sphere uh, if we want to use those terms is um standards tend to go up as well, <laughs> so like the standards of expected cleanliness and so forth go up, and so you know the, the 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 labor saving aspects of those tend to get diminished from that sort of angle as well
2: is this an argument for like bodily filth? <laughs> <laughs> just checking <laughs> where we are bodily, on hygiene. Bodily filth is quite, a lot. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm in favour of um, hygiene. I wouldn't go as far as bodily filth. No, no. But it's it's just that it's just that trying to think about you know what what drives technology. How autonomous is technology? Is it, it, technological discovery from other other sorts of drivers such as social relations, uh, capitalism, etc. Yeah, and then what happens? What happens to those? to those impacts i mean it's a really famous part of the whole debate around automation that you know in the 1930s keynes wrote a wrote a, an essay called "The economic possibilities of our grandchildren like projecting ahead to, actually to the year 2020 so two years ago <laughs> in which he, he <laughs> so predicted but extrapolating from you know productivity increases partly to do with technological innovation he predicted that mankind would have solved his economic problems by 2020, basically. And we'd all be working something like three-hour shifts or a, 50, three hour shifts a day or a 15-hour work week, <laughs> right? And he was wrong. That's not what's happened. In fact, over the last 30 years, the, the work week has gone up. You know, Um can't remember what it is. It's something like one in 20 people work like more than 60 hours a week or something like that. He, you know, his other thing he thought was that, he was predicting that by 2020 we would basically have the end of capitalism he called it the the euthanasia of the rentier basically that 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 there'd be such an abundance of capital so you know technology uh invested in sort of like you know productive plants etc etc that that basically there would be no possibility for capitalists to exploit the scarcity of capital he said uh, so he thought that we, you know, we'd basically be living in not quite fully automated luxury communism, but you know, fully automated luxury Keynesianism. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and and you know, that was that that idea that like th- that technology would push us towards uh, a freer society. You know, that was quite a shared across at least a large proportion of the of the political spectrum. You know, Keynes was no no revolutionary you know he, he always said you know he'll be on the side of the of the educated bourgeoisie in the class war that's his side he knew what side he was on I was just going to say you know that's an interesting question like what drives technology what drives technological change but also I think there's a, this question not just of like what drives technology it's like is auto- is, te- is, is is technological innovation and scientific innovation is it an aut- a force which is autonomous two things such as the dynamics of capitalism because i think we'd also alongside the the washing machine we probably also point to the contraceptive pill as this thing that would got invented and got rolled out for particular because of the particular the particular sort of historical moment but then had effects which were which would have been quite hard to predict i think and like really really world historic effect, effects such as the impact of second wave feminism and the change position of, of women in society, which, you know, in the Victorian age, had, uh, had got to a low point in the 1950s, had got to a low point. But basically, the sort of the liberation of women to, to, a, to a certain degree, you know, is a really big um, change in, in world history, I think. And you could argue that that's to do with social movements. You could argue it's to do with the state of capitalism at that moment. Uh, But you could also argue it's the effect of these couple of technological innovations which create a whole sphere of possibility.
2: And I like that. I think there's, there's something that is unpredictable about all of this. I think you know, with hindsight, you can have all sorts of different sets of analyses on this. But I think the 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 example that Catherine makes of the um, electric car. I mean, uh, maybe this was common knowledge. I had no idea that there were electric cars at the turn of the the nineteenth or twentieth century. But because of a complex set of factors, both like economically and, you know, gender roles at the time and like what was understood by marketing and how the markets worked and, you know, global power, all the rest of it, it didn't thrive. And we went on to motorized cars. And if you look back at the detail of how how that went about, you wouldn't have necessarily, you think, oh, why has that outcome? Why have we had this outcome? And I think that's, that sort of almost answers the, the, the question of why Keynes' vision didn't come to be, because in a way it sounds like, from what you're saying, Kira, he's basically saying, if, if you have this technological development, it will drive us towards freedom. But of course, that's not true, because that's not how power and interests work. And that's not how the global politic operates.
0: I don't think Keynes, for example, was necessarily naive. I don't think he necessarily naively believed that technology as such would liberate humanity. He recognised correctly that technological advance would lead to a situation in which it was definitely hypothetically technologically possible for everybody to work a 15-hour week, which it definitely is and has been since the 70s. But he was naive about the extent to which class forces and and the very nature of capital and capitalism would do everything in its would obstruct that objective and i think you could say i mean you can make similar comments about katrin's really important and interesting analysis of the way in which the internal combustion engine ended up being promoted and supported as opposed to electric cars and it's definitely true and really interesting the way that though that's partly because of the way in which the electric car ended up being coded as feminine from very early on. And but I would also say I don't, I haven't read the book actually, so I don't know how much detail she gets in, into the about this in the book. But it's also clearly because. The oil industry was geopolitically much more powerful than the the, the sectors of capital who, had in, who were investing in electric cars, and then, mm-hmm. of course, they're going to use things like gender ideology to further their interests. I'm not really convinced that it's the gender factors that were, were, were necessarily completely causal in that instance. That I think I'll, I think the bottom line is that the oil industry was very closely tied up to the emerging American empire and the, the dying remnant of the British empire in a way that the electric car industry wasn't. So they absolutely wanted to promote those things, but it's still, but it is really fascinating. It's clearly, there is a really, it's a really fascinating example of how gender and Capital, you know, gender relations and class relations and all these things interact with each other. Exactly. I think, I it's think the you combination really,
2: of this, the whole soup, isn't Yeah,
0: it? it's all those things. And I think without that kind of gender analysis, you can't really explain some of the features of even the capital, even like the petrol engine car industry in the 20th century. I mean, it, it is just, it is completely ridiculous when you think about it. The, the car industry for decades and decades revolved around turning out cars, that were much more powerful than you were legally allowed to use, like much more powerful than you were legally allowed to use on any of the roads in the countries they were selling them. You know, it's it's kind of great. And I think without, without car culture being partly invested with all these masculine fantasies of power and speed and... You know, it wouldn't be the case that you would have had, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of, of consumer, retail consumers' money being wasted on machines that they were actually never going to be allowed to use in the way that they were being designed to be used, which it, it is sort of crazy.
1: The other way to think about that is basically a battle within fossil fuels, like the, the, the design, because when we're talking about electric cars and electricity, particularly in the, the um, first half of the 20th century, we're talking about coal. Yeah, that's true. Um, and the move towards oil is it was mm. in some ways driven by the the desire to to move away from coal, yeah, because totally, coal yeah. was the source of really strong unionisation. You get strong unions in dangerous work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and coal production was taking place in the 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 core countries, uh, whereas oil production was taking place in countries, you know, in the Middle East, etc. Countries in which in, there could be some sort of influence, or control exercised over them by that's a, really a combination point, yeah. of like the big companies tied up with, and those big companies were tied up with the, the big imperial companies, etc. BP's um, tied up with the British state, etc.
0: That's totally correct. I think that's a really good point. If you, if the post in post-war Britain, if the motor car network, the motoring network is dependent on the national grid the same way other everything else is then you you've got a yeah. socialist revolution in the sixties <laughs> yeah, that's you've got that's just, that is just happening because the miners were already the british miners were already one of the most you know militant and powerful sections of the european working class at that time and that's because and it's because so much of the power grid ran on coal so yeah that's a good point
2: yeah that's a really int- that, yeah that's a really good angle
1: no I was just going to say we could follow that that argument a little bit up and sort of bring out a sort of marxist analysis of like what what drives technological change because we could follow that on and, and in capital marx writes it would be possible to write a whole history of inventions made since 1830 for the sole purpose of providing capital with weapons against working class revolt uh, and that sort of quote that quote the sort of like working class revolt drives technological innovation because it, it you know be because capital tries to tries to use technology in order to to escape from those moments where, where labor or the working class can hold power you know you can put it into into much more economic terms and just say basically high wages drives technological perhaps technological innovation or technological take up something like that why would you move your technological base invest in new plant this expensive thing if if wages are low enough that you can just Get the same effect by by doubling the, the by building new plant, basically, with the same technological base. Uh, it's only when human labour gets gets expensive that capital invests in new technology, and there's all sorts of theories about that how, how that takes place.
0: I mean, this all comes down to the the question of what's the relationship between capital accumulation, the pursuit of profit and actual yep. technological innovation and the, the capitalist story. a central part of the liberal capitalist story since the 17th century is the thing about capitalism that legitimates it is it generates innovation. It generates technological innovation and commercial innovation, which end up having beneficial effects for the vast majority of humans. And This is the thing, I would have to say, this is the thing that like Tories or even Blairites, like liberal or even conservative advocates of capitalism, deeply believe. They deeply believe that what causes, what creates innovation is capitalism. And then there's more, there's at least two versions of the kind of Marxist response to that. And one is a certain strand of Marxist thinking, which basically says, yes, that is true. But every mode of production, including capitalism, reaches the point where it, where it was innovating and now it isn't. Now it's stifling innovation. And that's what creates the conditions for you know revolutionary forces to emerge and makes it sort of socially necessary to move on to a new state. So that's one version. And there's another version which says... Actually, no, capitalism as such is not what's creative. Like the Industrial Revolution isn't the same thing as capitalism. The Industrial Revolution was a sort of technological revolution and it would have happened in some form, whatever social arrangements you had. And what capitalism does is it it might facilitate certain kinds of technological development, but it's always very prescriptive about which ones it's going to facilitate and which it isn't. And it's always trying to control the outcomes and to some extent, capitalism is always sort of running behind, trying to catch up with both new forms of technological innovation and new forms of social organisation that emerge in response to it. And I sort of, I mean, my own view, you know, as something I've thought about a lot and studied a lot is that they sort of all of those stories are true a bit, like the, the, the truth is a very complex sort of interaction between all those processes. But I've got this little thought experiment that I always like to do to think about this the relationship between like technology, technological change, power relationships, which I think we can do something with probably. And that is, well, firstly, I thought about this one in response to, you know, we've been through several waves of optimism and pessimism about just about cybernetic technologies and the internet and computing. I mean, I I published an academic journal article about this a year or two ago. And and one of the things I did in it was just go point out that even in my lifetime, there's a wave in the early 90s that we've talked about before when people are really optimistic about the way the internet is going to make democracy possible and liberate information. And then there's a wave of pessimism sort of following the dot-com crash when everybody says, oh, that was all bullshit. It was all just a, a dream. Then there's another wave of optimism around the time of things like MySpace, sort of destroying the music industry and good riddance to it, and the first emergence of social media when people are excited about the organisational prospects. And there's there's the idea that the Twitter is facilitating the 2011. You know uprisings in the Middle East and elsewhere,
2: which it didn't. But and
0: then yes. yeah, and then there's um, and that now we're going through quite a deep wave of pessimism at the moment. Now that everybody is seeing that Silicon Valley has consolidated itself into half a dozen mega monopolies. There's always this question then: Well, is our new technologies liberating or are they not liberating? And my general approach to that question is to say that well. Well, there's still two different questions, really. I mean, one question is just how autonomous are the emergence of new technologies? Or do technologies themselves only emerge from research programs which are serving the interest of the powerful? But if you part that for a moment and just say, well, what what happens when a new technology emerges? I think as a general default position, when a new technology emerges, it will usually benefit the people who already have power because any new technology is usually expensive. So the and it's usually the people who have power already are able to make use of it. And then the only way that people, the, the less powerful can respond to that is by coming up with new forms of organisation to eventually make it possible for them to reclaim some of their power or even get more power.
2: But that, sorry to interrupt, but that doesn't work for the argument that Keir was making earlier about the contraceptive pill, because it's not women who are in power and it's women who benefit well, that, from having yeah, no, control over their bodies.
0: Yeah, that's well, that's there is a feminist response to that. Hold on, let me just let me finish a little bit and I'll, I'll come back to that. The little my my, my 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 thought experiment version of that is about gender. Because I always say, well, what is the simplest form of technology you can possibly imagine? It's like somebody just picking up a stick and hitting something with it. And what is the simplest form of power imbalance you can imagine? It's the power, it's the physical power imbalance between adult men and adult women. And you imagine a kind of state of nature in which there's adult men and adult women. Well, once men start using sticks to hit things, it's only going to increase their power over women. But then conversely, the only way women are going to be able to respond to that is by finding some form of self-organization, some way of organizing themselves. This is partly why people like Chris Knight came up with the theory of the sex strike—the idea that yeah. some form, some form of women's autonomous organization must have been the basic form which human civilization took. Which, I mean, there's no evidence for or against it because there can't be. But it's an interesting thought experiment. <laughs> Anyway, and so in that thought experiment, eventually women will hopefully find some way of organizing themselves to counterbalance that or, or that power which men have accrued to themselves and, and increased by developing this new technology. And then it's so if men want to make, keep maintaining their power, they're going to have to come up with some other new technology. And that's analogous to the way in which the autonomous tradition thinks of cl- the relationship between class struggle and technological development, that it thinks that, well, basically, you know, the industrial, the form of the, you know, the, that really, the, the history of capitalism and in the Industrial Revolution actually begins with the concentration of people in in cities in the, in the late Middle Ages, and the concentration of cities is actually what's threatening to make populations ungovernable because the cities want to be self-governing and they've got all these artisans and craftspeople who don't want to do what they're told, and that and that they, I mean, at its most extreme, they'll argue that's what motivates imperialism, that's what motivates the aristocratic elites of late medieval Europe to go out and find new sets of people people who don't have city so they can kick around and then similarly it's what motivates you know key elements of the industrial revolution that you've got to disrupt the peasant communities the countryside you've got to disrupt the emerging forms of urban community so that you can keep maintaining authority and then the bit of Marx that that Kier was talking about it's it's saying it is point it's pointing out that many of the key innovations in in the use of industrial technology, the use of automation, systems of factory organization over the course of the nineteenth century, and even and you can you can extend this into the twentieth century, they're reactive. They're reactive to workers finding ways of organizing themselves to try to avoid exploitation. So I think it is, a, I think as a general way of thinking about that relationship, it's potentially quite useful. It's potentially useful because it avoids both being naive about the idea that technology will always liberate us and being pessimistic about the idea that new technologies can only lead to dystopias. And I think that's what we're seeing with social media. Like I think, of course, they're going to, of course, social media, or all other things being equal, mainly going to benefit our enemies because our enemies are the ones with all the money and power. But that doesn't mean we can't figure out ways of using them to organize ourselves in ways which are liberatory and democratic i know i've been going on for ages now but just that point about the pill well look, there is a feminist critique of the contraceptive pill i'm not saying i endorse this view but it is a view taken by some feminist historians mm. and, and the view is look yeah okay the contraceptive pill did did enable individual women to take control over their fertility um, without having to massively restrict their sexuality, at just a, at, at, at conveniently a hist- at a historical moment when capitalists were about to have a massive appetite for women's labour in the new post-industrial economy, but it ultimately. The, the point that's often made by feminists is it's that still ultimately made women the people who had to be responsible. And it also coincided with the emergence of a culture in which women were expected to be sexually available to yeah. men like, much more widely. And the point that is made by those feminist critics is, well, uh, if, if the research agendas that had led to the female contraceptive pill had been not governed by patriarchs, then we would have had a male contraceptive exactly. pill a yeah. long time ago. Because... The female contraceptive pill, I mean, it is, it is, I mean, it's a weird technology, the, the, the female contraceptive pill. And, you know, it's not that, I mean, there's all kinds of arguments about whether it's really that healthy, whether using it over a really long period is good for you, whether completely fucking with women's hormonal cycles is actually a good way of resolving the dilemma of the fact that people want to have lots of sex without having children. And, it was, you know, it, the argument is... Well, yeah, but
2: there was no investment, but that's the whole point, isn't it? Is that, that society does not invest in putting the money where there could have been a different solution because you're not trying, because controlling women's fertility is like the number one thing that patriarchy is trying to do.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, that's right, yeah. And that and that is always the, the big question in, for historians of technology. If this is a good example, but there's loads of others. It's always, look, look, Is it the case that technologies just emerge when powerful groups want them because they chuck in the research? But is it the case that, like the Romans, could easily have done the Industrial Revolution, but they didn't have any motivation to do it because they had a massive slave economy? Is it the case that the Romans, if they wanted to, could have developed electricity, uh, radio, and television? Which, mean, like, there is there are some historians of technology who say, look, you know, the the Rome, you know, the the late the late Roman Empire, you know, the level of technology is only about a hundred years away of a, a down certain paths from being able to invent television. So why don't they? And then. No, I'm not saying I endorse that. I'm not a bit of an expert enough to know but the the, the but then the, so there's this extreme sort of social constructionist argument which is associated with some strands of science and technology studies, people like Raymond Williams in his book on television, which tends to say, yeah basically anything could emerge any anytime and it's all about just who what the people in power want to get researched and get produced and then there's another argument that says, well. It might be true to an extent, but once technologies get out in the world, they do all kinds of stuff and then enable all kinds of stuff that nobody was really expecting or exactly. predicting.
2: I think it's, it, it, there's a compounded kind of exponential effect to technology. So you build one thing and at the same time something else is happening and, there, and then you put a layer on top of that some form of form of social change and then you get an outcome that you can't always predict. I mean, it seems crazy, but, you know... I accept that theory exists that the Romans could have had a t- TVs maybe they were chilling out too much they didn't need it they had other entertainment.
1: Uh, when people think about uh, about music and technology that that perhaps a band that might pop pop into their mind is Kraftwerk who were a band from Dusseldorf based around the, the duo of Florian Schneider and Ralf Hütter. One of the interesting things about Kraftwerk is they emerge out of this Sort of scene in Germany, which in the Anglo world is called Krautrock. It's certainly not called that in the G- Germanic world, but like a, a set of bands, which you could include like people like Can, Faust, Amund, Duhl etc., uh, who were basically trying to escape from from the blues and rock music, the sort of the, the sort of prison they thought that that had put onto onto music, and they wanted to sort of a sort of reinvention of music, inspired by people such as Stockhausen and uh, some of the people from, Cannes, for instance, Holkazuke was a student of Stockhausen's, and so there's this, this this sort of interesting story of they're trying to escape from this American black black American music, such as the blues. They're trying to escape from that. You know, it takes different forms and uh, uh, craftwork in particular. Uh, they sort of embrace this sort of technological aesthetic, uh, which sort of take, go, goes on to become. You know, there's sort of almost a sort of a cliche in a way. But this this music they produce, which is you know, based on sort of the, the whole kraut rock music is based on sort of like loops and repetitions rather than like the classic sort of rock music or pop music structure
0: and it's based on synths it's all using it's all yeah, synths yeah. so that there's no na- there's no non synthetic instruments
1: yeah so that's that's Kraftwerk when they when they get to become Kraftwerk um the classic Kraftwerk early early on they're using flutes and so forth yeah. but later on it's all synth and they're really experimenting with with, with early synthetic music and so that, that the, the 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 nice story is you know they, they they aim to escape There's this movement to escape from the the sort of structures of of, of the blues basically and you know they create this music where where perhaps Af- that are sort of like the, the the American blues and African tradition is removed, uh, and yet in the eighties and nineties it goes on to become like one of the, the communities that that really 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 embrace craftwork in particular are uh, African American communities. So it, first of all, it's people like African Mabata and, and Soul Sonic Force who do um, Planet Rock, which sort of samples craftwork. Uh, they invent like electro-funk and basically uh, a whole set, set of music, uh, music from that or musical traditions from that. And then the other people you could really point to, to really, really influenced, being really influenced by craft work in particular, uh, are techno outfits such as underground resistance and Dorexia. And so it's just this really interesting, why did black uh, and Af- African-American communities sort of recognise themselves in this really European sort of modernist uh, aesthetic. Dave Stubbs in his book on craft rock called Future Days makes this argument that craftwork um, are really, really influenced by the artistic and design movement Bauhaus, who sort of saw technology and art as something that cannot be separated. Basically, technology and art are, uh, should be unified, and you know, through the through the medium of design and used to to restructure the way people live. So there's this idea that like that's that's attitude towards craftwork. It's not good or bad technology. It's something to be used. Of course, the other thing about Kraftwerk is that they stopped making music in 1986 or stopped making new music in 1986 um, and then just become this nostalgia act, basically. They just go around the world touring. They, they're putting stasis. They go around the world touring the same songs and they sort of improve their, their show. So it's this like stasis of, a, of futurism, if you want to put it that way. Perhaps we should play uh, the robots from 1978
2: as an example. We are the the robots. We
1: are the robots. We are
2: the robots. Yet
0: robots. Okay, well, there's a couple of really important. Examples of those of African American artists indeed being directly influenced by Kraftwerk, amongst other things, in the mid '80s, which is really the moment of the birth of modern electronic dance music. uh, As much as I dislike the term EDM, Juan Atkins, recording as Model Five Hundred, recorded this arguably the classic Detroit techno track in 1985. This is a track called No UFOs. And famously, Juan Atkins and you know, contemporaries like Derek May, also from Detroit, from the Detroit suburbs, would comment on the irony or the appropriateness of the fact that they were trying to develop this self-consciously digital, self-consciously technologized self-consciously futuristic almost science fictional kind of music in the city that had been the birthplace of the American motor industry and also the, the arguably the graveyard of the American motor industry they very self-consciously saw themselves although they wouldn't have had this terminology available as charting a post-Fordist landscape of a, a computerized world though like craft themselves actually they it's very unclear like a are they are they just celebrating this fully computerized world and if so why like what is there even to celebrate about it given that their own aesthetic seems to emphasize the alienness the non-humanness of the of that landscape and you can read that in a lot of different ways. Historically, it's been quite popular to see Kraftwerk and the Detroit techno artists as sort of anti-humanist in some way and is, in a positive sense, kind of wanting to transcend the limits of ordinary humanism. I tend to think that that's understandable, but I'm not sure I really buy it as a, as a reading of what their aesthetic is trying to do. I think it's more about the radicalism of the gesture the pure radicalism of finding beauty in the the workings of these machines which are largely being rolled out and popularized for the purpose of making industrial workers unemployed i mean that's what the purpose to which digital cybernetic technologies are are being put on a global scale but the fact that those technologies can be used you know, through the use of circuitry and keyboards to make actually quite beautiful music and quite a and, and music which is very moving in a sort of human way, I think is a pretty radical gesture.
2: Okay. How about we talk about the left's relationship with technology? Because what interests me, going back to your point from, I don't know how long ago in this chat, uh, Jeremy, when you're talking about, you know, the Blairites and, you know, the centrists basically saying if the left took over, like everything would stagnate. And I think there's an interesting aesthetic, um, which I'd like us to to think about as we're underlying, underlining these kind of questions, which is this, I, I, I do think there are people out there who think, you know, if, if there is a socialist revolution like you know, we will basically be like cavemen and women, et cetera. And, you know, everyone's going to, we won't be able to use iPads. And, you know, this is what the left want. They want everything to kind of regress. When actually the 20th century vision, left vision, was very much one of, and I've spoken about this on the show before, Progress with a capital P. Like we want more and the concepts of like development and, you know, more technology. And these are good. And I think this was kind of something I think that the left thought that, it encompassed in part of its identity. That's my impression from kind of my, the readings that I yeah done. yeah totally yeah. And I'm interested about whether like if we go back, maybe we should talk a little bit about the Luddites, and maybe we should talk about like now because I don't I'm not sure if the left has a position or can have a position on technology, and maybe it's right that it doesn't have a position on technological innovation. And innovation again, going back to your point jeremy is that personally i quite like the idea of innovation and dynamism you know and i want us to have a left that is is pro those things but but there's so it's so captured within the aesthetic of neoliberalism that it's almost you know telling t- trying to get things to stop a bit so we can ha- have a moment to organize ourselves seems to be where we at where we're at and how we experience talking about technology in day to day life, because we haven't managed to you know, as in one of the games that that when we've gamified these things, you know the games that I don't know what it's what what the game is called that Kia came up with that we've done in certain um events, you know if those alliances between different bodies in society that you know like the hackers and the the innovators and whatever to be able to bring about the kind of disruption to neoliberalism is not where we're at so therefore it feels like the left is at a position where we're not i mean obviously the left is not like one lump of a thing but i can't see accelerationism as something that's really taking hold
0: well, let's talk about that history of Luddism to Accelerationism. Keir, you can talk about Luddism, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, so Luddism, it, the Luddites were were a, were, a, were a sort of a movement that took place quite a lot of it around me in um, West Yorkshire and, and further afield, in which uh, workers would organise, workers who would organise to, to, to try to smash up looms, basically, uh, industrialised looms. You know, the new wave of automated looms. Yeah, the new wave of, of automated looms, basically, because it would put them out of a job. Uh, and you know, it wasn't just—it wasn't an anti-technology thing. It was a—it was a class movement, of course. And you know, they yeah, would all organise... typical
0: of the backwards attitudes of the Yorkshire working class, in my view.
1: <laughs> We're still quite scared of uh, computers up here. <laughs>
0: Unlike the uh, the forward-looking uh, vanguardism of the Lancashire working class, quite, quite quite different. Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'm not sure we can uh, get into War of the Roses on ACFM right now, right?
1: But in all seriousness, like that preposterous remark, um, <laughs> <laughs> like basically, it was the Luddites were seen as like a revolutionary threat. You know, they basically people would organise in large groups and go uh, and attack uh, the mills. And mills were like fortified and had soldiers inside, and there'd be exchange of fire. People would be killed, etc. You know, it was seen as like a it wasn't seen at the time as like an anti-technology thing. It was seen as like a revolutionary threat. Yeah, and then
0: and so then the term Luddite comes to be a term for just anyone who fruitlessly, pointlessly, yeah, tries to resist the onward march of technology. Yeah, and even, tries to resist the future. It's
2: so used as a pejorative. Yeah, yeah and yeah. even
0: within the even within the left tradition. I mean, I was joking, but they are. I mean, within even within the kind of historical memory of the British left, it's true. The Luddites are remembered as a sort of failure and as backward looking and reactive, mm. whereas, you know, the real heart of the real heart of the radical proletariat it was to be found in Lancashire in Manchester, where the the newly or the newly automated industrialized weaving industry really took off and, and formed the kind of modern proletariat. So but then E. P. Thompson, the great Marxist historian in his most famous book, The Making of the English Working Class. One of his like major interventions is to try to reclaim the Luddites and to say Luddism was not just a kind of reactive, you know, it wasn't just reactive and reactionary and conservative. It was a nascent form of class consciousness. And it was central to the process by which some kind of radical class consciousness eventually emerged. We should say they're called the Luddites because their mythical leader was a, an imaginary character called Ned Ludd. Uh, But there has been, there clearly has been a, a historical dialectic between sections of the left who seemed to be trying to resist technological change in industry and elsewhere because it would disrupt their existing situation and lead to unemployment and weaken the unions, and those who weren't. I mean, my favourite historical example, as usual, is probably from the seventies. And if you, if you, the standard mainstream media narrative about British industry in the seventies is that the unions were obstructing the process of automation and making industry more efficient, and that's why Thatcher eventually had to completely demolish the unions in order for British industry to recover. The, of course, the problem with that narrative is it didn't recover at all, and still hasn't, and never has done. Uh, but if you get into the detail, you know, there were people on the far left, people in the Communist Party and the shop stewards movement, people of the far left, were often arguing, indeed, that forms of automation, the containerization of the shipping ports, etc, were, were really necessary, but that they could only really go forward if there was much more high levels of investment in industry. And they could they should only go forward in a way that enabled people to transition to having different jobs or be part of the process without causing mass unemployment. And it was all those demands which the British ruling class and their political agents didn't want to meet. But the the narrative that Uh, these unions, like they don't wanna they don't wanna automate the shop floors. That's why we're falling behind the Germans and the Japanese in car manufacturing or whatever. That was a really powerful part of the right-wing narrative. And it was it was at best only ever partially true. Like what was a lot of the time what was really true is that you is that the the left of the unions was saying, look, we do have to modernize our industry, and this is how you would do it in a way that wouldn't destroy everybody's lives. And The bosses were looking at those plans and seeing that they would cost them money and and would be a hassle and just saying no forget it
1: I mean that follows through into Blairism doesn't it and here's the forces of conservatism this this idea that there's a direction to history it's driven Mm. by technological innovation um, and it will lead to benefits for everybody like that's the story I think that is not believable now basically it's not believable for a few reasons one because of the, the the absolute stagnation of the economy and the stagnation of productivity technology has not improved productivity and you know there's not there's not huge amounts of money going into trying to develop new technology it should increase pro- increase productivity
2: yeah but also show me show me technology that's gonna uh that's gonna get us out of this so-called cost of living crisis yeah. Yeah. There, there, there isn't a technological fix to this. It's a policy fix. And that proves your point.
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, there's all sorts of arguments about what, what, why why we're in the state that we're in. I mean, the main reason for that is wages are not rising. <laughs> and the main reason for wages not rising is because workers aren't organised. It's just a one to one relationship. Um, and of course, that's where that's where Keynes was wrong. Keynes, you know, when he thought that we would be working three three hours a day, fifteen hours a week, he was assuming that wages would remain would remain sticky downwards. It'd be very hard to push wages downwards, which is the situation in the nineteen thirties because there was a big wave of unionisation. And we don't know how that's going to go. You know, there may be a new wave of unionization and then perhaps that will re- that will influence the, the, the direction of, of technology. An overall sort of like frame for thinking about like a Marxist attitude towards technology is just this idea that like capital is always seeking to flee from labor. Right. So always trying to escape from labor and it does that in various ways, perhaps geographically, you know, flees from the from the global north to the global south because wages are lower. Or it does it through technology or perhaps it does it through through things such as debt and assets, which it flees it temporarily. It, it pushes um, struggles over resources into the future, which is what debt does, basically. This idea that like labor, because it's human beings, that has the potential to be insubordinate and demand things. Technology cannot be insubordinate and so that's why you'd flee into into technology and like that's reflected in lo- in films like the matrix or this constant return to the idea of basically robots become insubordinate and rebel against humanity it's one of the founding myths of accelerationism what became known as accelerationism around the the cybernetic cultures research unit in warwick in the 1990s i can take right-wing or, or left-wing angles depending on where you think that's that sort of what the role of that sort of imaginary might might play I think.
0: I think that that notion of the flight of capital from labour is is really important. It's a great
2: image as well I'm amazed that's not been produced in different kind of artistic forms. The
0: basic idea there isn't it is that basically capitalists are completely dependent upon workers yeah. to generate value but they hate the fact that they are dependent upon workers so they are never reconciled to their dependence on workers and that is why class struggle carries on and
2: whether it's wage labor or it's free labor that is being made to sustain yeah it's all kinds of labor
0: yeah and and, and including consumers as well who have to who somehow have to be part of the process or or nothing gets gets done and The dream of Keynes, like the dream of the liberal progressivists for the past 200 years has been somehow reconciling workers and capital to each other. And it's somehow the the dream is the dream of a good capitalist who accepts that they are dependent upon labour and therefore accepts the need to limit some of their desire for limitless accumulation, you know, in order to reward labour. And of course, it's just, it, it, it never happens. It doesn't work like that.
2: Because capitalism drives people to being sociopaths.
0: Yeah, because it's just, you, because it's just, it, yeah, it's the nature of capitalism is that the drive to unlimited accumulation can't be just stopped. You know, you can't, it becomes something other than capitalism as soon as you try yeah. to stop
1: it. Marx talks about this guy, Mr. Moneybags. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter whether Mr. Moneybags is, so, is a sociopath or not. He may go to church, he may be a very nice man. But basically, he's got to meet or beat the market average of profitability. And if not, he goes out of business. And so it can be very nice people caught in a dynamic that they are not in control of, right? That's, that's the thing that drives, that's the thing that ca- captures us and and, and and channels behavior in a certain direction. You know, it's, the, it's these economic dynamics that we, we're caught up in and we can't control.
2: Which is why it's so hard to make those arguments about structural causes for things, because as human beings, you want to associate yourself or disassociate yourself from individuals. So if individuals are marketed as, or groups of people are marketed as, you know, he's a nice guy, but it then becomes very difficult to organize against them.
0: Almost contemporary uh, and almost neighboring the Detroit techno artists like Juan Atkins, was the output of the early acid house producers. So the classic example there would be this track called Acid Tracks by Future. Future spelled PH. Future was one of the names used by a guy called DJ Pierre. And I never realized I've forgotten even what his real name is. But. DJ Pierre Future pioneered the so-called acid house sound, and he pioneered this very abstract, almost kind of non, almost non-melodic, purely textural electronic sound—the acid house squelch, which you hear on that sound—and he pioneered that by using the what I I think in some ways the last iconic instrument uh, before music all just ended up being made on laptops and that's the roland 303 bass synthesizer and the roland 303 was intended just to be a practice aid for guitarists it wasn't intended to be used in actual musical production but it was very unsuccessful commercially because it was very hard to program so these redundant bass synths were available secondhand or or end of line very cheaply Uh, in music shops in the early to mid 80s. And so they uh, ended up getting used by these experimental techno and house producers to produce this incredible sort of science fictional sound. And it became the sound of acid house. And I think that's a really great example of how technologies do have sort of material properties of their own. They have what theorists of technology call affordances, which are sort of built into them, even if they're not intended by the people who design them. And they can be exploited in very productive ways. I've got a whole line on the idea that the whole history of 20th century and early 21st century music culture is basically about musicians of the african diaspora finding ways of using technologies that they didn't really design usually but that they are using in ways completely different from how the designers imagined them being used uh, to create fantastic new kinds of music and i think you can trace that history continuously going back to the early 20th century uh, and this is something I've, we've talked about a lot on the podcast i do with tim lawrence love is the message The single most like, extraordinary like, fact of British chart music history, in my view, is the fact that this record got to... I think it got to number two, I think, in the British top 40 singles charts. It definitely got in the top 10. At the moment, the early 80s, which was the global... The, no, global, the historic peak of British pop singles sales. So you had to sell a lot of records to get in the charts in 1982. And this record did... Uh, is laurie anderson laurie anderson american conceptual artist and musician and it's i mean it's it's a sort of soundtrack it's a piece of audio art it's not even it's barely music but it was obviously its popularity was directly building on the popularity of Kraftwerk, uh who were really popular you know not just with you know black kids on estates in in america you know they were really popular with with, you know, kids on the estate I lived in in Lancashire, you know, in Skelmersdale. Um, and uh, when well, my dad lived in St. Helens as well, people really, loads of people were really into craft So the Laurie Anderson really built on that. And it is absolutely, Laurie Anderson, the whole aesthetic of the music and the whole aesthetic of the video, which is really famous, and Laurie Anderson's whole mode of self-presentation, absolutely anticipates that Donna Haraway essay uh, by three or four years, that idea that um, somehow the kind of technology a technologized cyborg aesthetic is partly a way of escaping from restrictive ideas of, of gender uh, it, it's it, it's an idea that... This is also going on with Kraftwerk's aesthetic a lot. One reason why the idea of the robot is attractive, or the cyborg is attractive, is because it's inherently androgynous. And it's a way of escaping restrictive ideas of masculinity or femininity. And it it's just mind-blowing. that It's mind-blowing that this was a massive hit, this record. And it really... know it says something about that moment the early 80s i mean this is precisely the moment of the glc in london it's the moment where it's it's in it's arguably the high point of british radical culture i think actually 1982 arguably it's a sort of high point and uh, i think it's only at that high point that a record like this like becomes a chart here it's just unbelievable I really, really recommend anyone interested in that historical moment. look at Andy Beckett's book, I promised you a miracle britain eighty to eighty two because it it does paint the picture of 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 that moment as a kind of high point for british radicalism oh. also just thinking that one of the implications of this analysis of of like what's happened to the British industrial economy or post-industrial economy since the 70s is the neoliberal idea is that if you suppress labour, if you disaggregate, disorganise and suppress the power of workers to organize as workers, or to organize in any way at all, actually, then what you will do is you will liberate the creative potential of entrepreneurs, of capital, and of a newly empowered petty bourgeoisie as well. And they will generate a dynamic, forward-moving economy. That was what was supposed to happen. Uh, that isn't what's happened what happened is what marxist would would have said would happen is what you will end up with is a is a massive rentier landlord class extracting rents from everybody and actually not dynamically generating innovation at all because then part of the motivation to generate innovation has always come from you know it's come from organized labor pushing and pushing and pushing and without that you just get a fat complacent degenerate Capit- even a capitalist class, even from their own, from a sort of Keynesian perspective.
2: And shitloads of bureaucracy, like yeah. really shitty bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, because that's necessary to keep, dis- I mean, that's just necessary to keep disciplining labour, exactly. keep disciplining them.
1: I always think that's part of what m- why Mark Fisher was so concerned about this argument around cultural stagnation. Yeah. Because that, yeah. the neoliberal promise is is that we're going to be living in this in this innovative world. And like you can trace that intellectual inheritance of that back to people like Joseph Schumpeter, for instance, who was like this first half of the 20th century economist in the Austrian school, so sort of like uh, a right-wing economist, but basically somebody who, who, who'd probably read Marx and not a million miles away from the story we've been telling from a Marxist analysis of technology.
0: You know, well, he's, he's famously the right-wing economist who understands capitalism.
1: Yeah, the, from the a Marxian point of view, one, yeah,
0: like he's again, he's in, he's in favor of it, and he's against socialism, but he understands how it actually works.
1: Even his ethic of capitalism is we can we can define w- when capitalism is 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 well functioning, but when you, the rate of innovation and technological uh, innovation is accelerating, basically. So famously, he he's sort of against the sort of neoclassical e- economists who basically think that you know the moral uh, um, determinant of of a functioning economy or not is could be determined by low prices he says no that's not true it's nothing to do with like competition and all this sort of stuff he says you know you can have monopolies and monopolies are great as long as those monopolies are producing you know entrepreneurial activity and and technological innovation and of course that's an angle on which you can you can just use that and say well okay let's apply that to contemporary world and you see innovation absolutely nowhere right and it, that is well that, that was the argument mark was putting forward around Mark fisher was putting forward around culture you can totally make that sort of argument around technology and that like there's in fact there's lots of people who put it who, who make this argument that we may think we're living in a, t- a time of technological acceleration but we're in a time of technological stagnation and so this image that i i, I was telling you to when we were in in a preparatory meeting was this this sort of conservative um economist called tyler cowen who says, look, you know, if we, if we want to think about the important technologies, let's not think about the mobile phone. Let's think about the kitchen, the domestic sphere. And he he has this image. He says if somebody from the 1930s walked into a 1950s kitchen, they basically would not be able to make dinner. <laughs> they wouldn't know what was going on because you have all of these innovations that, that, that occur. Basically, a kitchen from today would be completely understandable from somebody from 1970. They say, though, these are nice and shiny. These are a bit smaller. What's that? What's that iPad uh, thing that's on the on the counter?" But basically, the, the the general coordinates of the of the technologies in which we use to structure our lives—they'll just go and get into a car. They may, oh, there's a button you press instead of a key, perhaps, in this car. But basically, the same technologies, a lot more efficient, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but not these big, big changes
2: but they had better wages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, well this <laughs> is also this is
1: this
0: is an argument that gets made about the internet, which is interesting. I mean, the argument is you can make a whole argument that says for a start, things like France's Min- Minitel network in the mid-80s mm. showed that look, we could have had full fiber broadband by 1996 if governments had actually wanted to implement it. We could have had that. The stuff that is undeniably useful and fun like real-time video calls. We could have had all that 20 odd years ago. It's all it's all stuff that was envisaged by the late sixties, and that the basic uh, or underlying technologies had all been created by the late sixties. Or we shouldn't like be really grateful because now we can like chat on Zoom. Like we should have been able to chat in Zoom by, on Zoom by nineteen ninety three, and that would have been the equivalent of the great technological revolution of the late 20th century, which sees photography, cinema the internal combustion engine, powered flight, telegraphy, telephones, audio recording, all that stuff. All of that stuff that none of which had existed before invented within about sort of 50 years. And the equivalent to that would have been a situation where yeah, we've we've got Zoom calls by the early 90s. And by Can you now, imagine
2: how that would have affected rave. And by now, na- well by big. now,
0: well in this alternative timeline, by now we've got a global solar power grid which is all powered by the um by the Sahara desert. You know, I know,
2: tell me which, about you know,
0: that. By in this alternative, that's what we should have had by now if we have been living through something on an equivalent scale. We could have had solar-powered planes that made no pollution and cost virtually nothing to run. Yeah, that's the world we should have been living in by now. We've talked before on the show about the idea of the early 90s as a kind of lost moment of radical promise. And in musical terms, a couple of things probably express that. On the one hand, there's the brief moment when people thought that the ambient dub music of the Orb was going to be the music of the 90s. Uh, And perhaps even more strikingly and poignantly, there's the moment when... Uh, great British music critic, friend of the show, Simon Reynolds, named this new emergent genre of what he called post-rock. And the great exemplar of post-rock was to be this Stratford, East London-based band called Disco Inferno. And Disco Inferno were a band who had started off sounding like Joy Division and then decided they wanted to copy what they saw New Order as doing when they – Moved from being Joy Division to being New Audit in the early 80s. And that was to adopt the newest in musical technology to change their sound. And so they started trying, they were trying to mix traditional rock instrumentation with sampling and synthesizer technology. And they were using MIDI triggers and things to trigger samples on their guitars and bass and drums while also using those in a fairly conventional way to produce this really unique soundtrack. So a track like Even the Sea Size Against Us from their 1993 album, D.I. Go Pop, really exemplifies this. And I was hugely excited by Disco Inferno. I loved seeing them live. I really bought into Simon's argument that this was the wave of the future for British music. And of course, that went sort of nowhere. Post-rock didn't really develop, although it did produce Pram, the greatest British band of the 90s. No argument to be had about that. And... Um, But the really interesting thing about Disco Inferno and their music is it produced this very self consciously contemporary sound, but it was a sound that couldn't really develop because actually that particular branch of music technology just didn't really develop. It didn't, things like MIDI triggers, live sampling, etc. Uh, especially when using actually played instruments the technology has barely moved on since the early 90s you can do live triggering of samples using things like ableton if you just want to do loops but basically it really exemplifies the way in which the, the development of musical technology since the early 1990s has almost all been about facilitating just two things solo music making on laptops and solo music listening on mobile devices on headphones The the, the practice of making music together of of using live instruments of mixing live instruments with electronic with with electronics and digital technology all of that stuff it's moved on a little bit since 93 but heart but it's just in terms of how far people would have expected it to have moved on by now barely at all and i think that is really exemplifies the some of the things we've been saying about the cultures of technology that you know the the the, what forms of technology have actually been developed and rolled out compared to what could have happened has been very clearly shaped by the ideological preferences of neoliberalism and those class interests which have benefited from it so tragically di go pop still that out there album from 93 it still sounds like a document of a music that could have happened and really didn't or hasn't done yet
2: we don't expect to be seen we don't expect to be heard money's tied in the moment so is the mind you just so close
0: the whole kind of accelerationism debate I I think is has passed now I mean accelerationism was a term created by Benjamin Noyes, and it it was a critical term for the positions taken by people like Nick Land and the CCRU at Warwick that thought that what you should do is try to accelerate the process of capitalism so that you end up abolishing the horrible strictures of humanness that we're still stuck with. And then there's this left-wing version of accelerationism associated with early writing by people like Alex Williams and Nick Mm -hmm. Cernicek, which is really... It's not really saying anything more than, well, actually, we should be demanding much higher rates of te- and better technological innovation and, and socially socially egalitarian and liberatory uses of technology. And that, that should be part of our demands. And and they they were reacting against what they saw as a certain sort of primitivist aesthetic that was quite prevalent on activist culture around the time of things like the climate cam, for example. I sort of think I suspect that if we were, if we were to say well actually what you know what what is our opinion on all this I don't think any of us would really disagree would we we, w- we wouldn't disagree that yeah you know, we should be critical and demanding in terms of asking like, well who gets to decide what technology emerges that we all probably acknowledge that technologies, once they emerge, do have a degree of autonomy. They have social and political consequences that can't be predicted. And part of the job of the left is to work out what to do with them creatively and constructively.
2: And not be co-opted. Yeah. Not be co-opted. But also, I think, I mean, this is kind of like the an underlying issue that kind of is has been implied by, by what we're saying. But I think this conflation of creativity with entrepreneurship or like capitalist entrepreneurship, like is really problematic yeah. in the And the idea that we will not get advancement in things, if you don't have capitalism, I think is crazy, because it just depends on where you put the, the funding, like, obviously, people are going to do things like people want a wage, people want to be able to live comfortably, and you will not go and become a scientific researcher and X or Y or Z or whatever, if there's no money in it, like that kind of makes sense. But you don't, you don't need capitalism for that. Like- it's not
0: just that you don't need it. It's that pure capitalism is the historical... The jury of history is now has returned its verdict on that. Pure capitalism doesn't deliver it. I mean, the point made by... Pure Bourgeois, capitalism
1: delivers what we've got now. Fucking yeah. stagnation, basically. That's it's that. what it
0: delivers here. And the, the point made by these historians and economists, not at all leftist, really. People like uh, Mariana Mazzucato in this country, some of the historians of Silicon Valley in the States, they're always making this point. You know, Silicon Valley didn't, wasn't, or the core technologies of Silicon Valley weren't developed by freewheeling entrepreneurs. They were developed by massively state-funded university exactly. labs. Exactly,
2: exactly. You know, they
0: were being funded by the military. That's a whole other issue. But they were having huge amounts of state capital. There was absolutely zero way the market could have coordinated and concentrated the necessary allocations of capital to make those things happen. It never has done. And
2: it's the coordination is a big, big point there, to be able to move assets and skills and in the in in into one place you know that that requires national policy it's a cultural it's one of those cultural assumptions i think that exist in culture is because again of what i was was referring to earlier the the aesthetic around You know, who innovates and what innovation is and how these things move and how you set up businesses and the whole capture of the world of entrepreneurship on top of creativity and innovation means that there's a lens that people are looking through and how its discourse is set around how innovation and kind of creative forces happen.
0: No, I think you're right. I think that's right we are left acceleration. if we're taking this position I think we are left acceleration I don't though, feel they need to take.
2: Poli- I don't <laughs> feel the need to take positions as much as you guys but I'm not I'm not sure that I would call myself an accelerationist because I think no, it, I, it, it, there's a lot implied in that as well that I would want to kind of tease no open. of
0: course well I mean my bit my critique of the whole concept of left accelerationism is to be fair a lot of the people associated or some of the people associated with it did just accept and, and stopped using the term years ago not just because of me because of lots of people saying similar things was that, look, what they are calling left acceleration is just the normal position of literally everyone on the left for the past two hundred years. Like there's no one, but like there's uh, there's no one on any part of the organised left over the past two hundred years who, when asked, would it be a good idea to use technological research and innovation to reduce the overall amount of work most people do? Nobody has said no to that. Like it's not, it's just know, yeah, that's what it means to be on the left in some in some sense for most of the past couple of hundred years. Is you think that's what should be happening?
1: there has been a, a sort of technophobic element in the left particularly around the green movement and uh, you know it is most extreme you get like anarcho primitivism by by you can see in writers such as john Zizan, who who basically say agriculture was a mistake right yeah. we need to go back to to hunter gatherer societies i think at some point he says language is a mistake as well that's where it all went wrong uh, and of course uh, and that there were elements of people who were into that, into primitivism and it was sort of put put, put alongside sort of ultra left sort of theories, such as Jacques Camat and these, these French ultra left sort of theorists. But like for the, the problem with that is that, you know, the carrying capacity of the earth, if we all, if, if hunter gathering is the mode of production is, you know, many multiples less than it is now. I think it's something like less than a million people or something like that. And so, you know, if you are a primitivist, you have to look uh, look around the world and decide which uh, uh, of your hundred friends is going to survive. Presumably, it'd be you, wouldn't it? And, and which of the hundred friends you're going to have to kill off in order to get to this society? It's a non-starter, really. But like, that, that's the extreme angle of that of that primitivism, rejection of technology.
0: Well, I just, I, I'm very sympathetic to that on a certain level. I, don't, I mean, I'm not sympathetic to killing off people or primitivism. I just think, it's the yoga, it's
2: the yoga. I mean, you just no, hate no, language.
0: The properly, the, the properly, you know, Marx and Engels' own position, as I take it, which I think has been pretty much borne out, actually, by most of the relevant research is, yet, yeah, of course, in terms of general human well-being, the shift to agriculture was a terrible mistake, but we're stuck mm. with it now. So we got to, all we can do is go forward to something better. Like we're not going backwards. So, in some sense, the whole point of socialism is to recognise the extent to which the division of labour, the introduction of hierarchy, uh, probably even the introduction of sedentary lifestyles, had a horrible effect. it had, and it did. It's it's there now. It's in the genetic and the fossil record that the shift from agriculture to, from hunter gathering made people shorter uh, more, less healthy had all kinds of really bad effects you know created the created hierarchy created you know di- despotic societies but you know it but the one thing it did was enable it enabled to support much larger populations um and especially allowed populations to survive catastrophic climate change which Hunter-gatherer cultures were often um just wiped out by. So, um, and we're stuck with it now. We're stuck with we we're stuck with, you know, tens of thousands of years of agricultural and post-agricultural society. So we've got to work you've got to accept that it was a disaster, but um work out, you know, how, on the basis of where we are now, we build a society which can mitigate the as much as possible the uh effect of what was obviously a bad idea in the first place (laughs) i
1: was reading an article about anthropological study on on hunter-gatherer societies and they'd been sort of like tagging the activities and like the by far the biggest activity that they tagged was doing nothing like literally not doing anything, yeah. not even doing like leisure, just sitting around and, you know, just not doing anything. basically.
0: Yeah, it's a stupid idea. Stupid idea. It's a completely stupid idea moving this far from the equator as far as where both of us live. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's obviously, it's just, it's obvious going to make you just really moody, if nothing else, like living on a part of the planet where it's like, it's really hot. And it's too bright to sleep, like, in the in the middle of summer. And then it's really dark. It's, like, freezing cold and miserable in the winter. That was just stupid. I curse my ancestors who thought living this far <laughs> from the equator was a good idea. It's bloody stupid. But we're stuck with it now.
1: You're taking this anti-Brexit thing too far. Um- <laughs> <laughs> but we're stuck with it now. There is a nice story, though, isn't there, basically, of the, the whole, like, faux science of evolutionary psychology I valorizes these hunter-gatherer societies in which we developed our bloody blah, blah blah blah. But those are societies in which you had huge amounts of time, free time, basically. And then we had to move through. We had to move through agriculture, which massively increased the amount of work that I had to do. Really had detrimental effects on people's health and lifespans, etc. Then you have to move through, like the industrial revolution, capitalism, etc., in order to get to a, to uh, to a society in which we can have free time again. And this, you know, the, and the, the yeah, sort exactly, of favoured yeah. route of, for that is technology, but added to the correct social relationships. Yeah, exactly. You can make all of that argument in in, in the idea that that Marx and Engels talked about primitive communism and then communism, basically. So, in evolutionary by evolutionary psychology terms surely we're just around to return to our natural state i don't agree with any of those arguments it's a, it's a bogus idea. i mean natural
2: state is a, is 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 a is a problematic i hate using the word problematic but it's a problematic term
1: i did renounce my own yeah. statement straight away you did <laughs> but anyway look that that's that's sort of like primitivism taken to its concerns but there there has been a general sort of idea a general sort of technophobia which is which has emerged into the left i think you know sometimes you know, obviously for very good reasons you know the sort of the idea that technology and progress and modernism would automatically lead to or, or, or technological innovation and science etc would all automatically lead to progress was you know it, people found it very hard to maintain that position in the aftermath of the first world war the aftermath of the second world war the aftermath of the holocaust these all these things have shaken Th- this idea of, of, of technological progress, you know, and, and of course we're living through another moment now.
0: Yeah, it's the point made by people like Ulrich Beck. That one, of, one of the things that characterises contemporary culture as distinct from even the culture of, say, up to the 1970s, is the fact that people just, we're conscious that the biggest threat to, to most of our, us now are the effects of a highly technology society you know it's pollution it's climate change it's traffic accidents it's heart disease from processed food you know we've shifted from a world in which the biggest threats to most humans were famine and disease to the biggest threat being the consequences of our own, of industrialization
2: actually the
0: late the advanced consequences of industrialization those chickens coming home to roost so
2: chlorinated chickens
0: yeah. And it's also true that from a political perspective, ideologically, that the biggest threat is a kind of naive is the naive technophilia of those who basically want to believe that we don't need radical social change because sooner or later there'll be a technical fix. Mm to climate change that the oil will run out we'll transition everything to renewables so we don't need any kind of massive social change and that is i mean i i do think that that is what really that is the default position of your typical member of relatively elite social groups in highly developed countries who isn't who is not doing anything significant to mitigate climate change but then one of the areas of thought where that debate around primitivism and its others has been most acutely argued out as in feminist thought isn't it so one analog of anti-technological primitivism historically and well still is forms of eco-feminism at their most extreme forms of goddess worshipping primitivist eco-feminism which identify industrial society in general maybe maybe even agricultural society in general, with patriarchy, and that see some kind of veneration of nature as such, some kind of rejection of technological society as part of a package of spiritual and political attitudes and practices. And then...
2: Which also, therefore, codes, going linking that to what Catherine was saying, is that that effectively codes... Um, technology as male which is problem- yeah exactly which is the problem yeah exactly
0: yeah. it accepts the view the technology is male
2: yeah
0: and so there's been really strong pushback against that over the past few decades by a string of thinkers the probably the most important of whom is donna Haraway. but if we're just sticking with the english-speaking world we could talk about shunamith firestone uh, the author of the dialectic of sex his book in the late 60s who argued that basically look if you want to achieve sexual equality just accept the reality that the thing which has disadvantaged women uh, for tens of thousands of years is having to bear children and let's just have cho- let's just have all babies in test tubes just forget about women carrying babies to term that is what will produce sexual equality and it's a really interesting argument, and it's one that's been revived a few times over the years. And it is a, it is an argument that, look, if it's a really simple argument. is that, look, there are biological sources of women's relative weakness to men. You know, they're partly around fertility, and they're partly around just physical weakness. Therefore, we should use technology to overcome those differences. And then a much more sophisticated version of comparable arguments, not the same really, is Donna Haraway's classic 1980s essay which is usually now just referred to as the Cyborg Manifesto. The full title was something like a manifesto for cyborgs, blah, 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 socialist, feminist, something. And um, it was framed as a direct critique of Californian goddess feminism in the mid-80s. And she says, famously, she says, I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. And it's it's a complicated argument which gets into the idea that on the one hand, technology should be good for women technology you know women as you've been saying nadia shouldn't see technology as a male domain that it should be enabling etc that there's a whole history of women having productive relationships with technology and that's idea that's been point you know that's been taken up by various commentators in the 90s and 2000s the idea that That, for example, women historically have been associated with technologies like weaving that has some kind, and the argument made by people like Sadie Plant in the 90s was that there's some sort of affinity between the complexity. Women
2: and soft, it's like a a soft, hard analogy. Yeah. In a very literal sense with fabric and versus, you know, metals.
1: And software as well.
0: Yeah, Yeah. there's an affinity. software, yeah. There's this idea there's an affinity between the complex meshwork of the loom and the, 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 and the complex meshwork of the network and of the computer processing network, etc. Et and there's contemporary iterations of, the, of, of those cyber feminist ideas in people like the group who published the Xeno Feminism. Uh, books a couple of years ago i've never totally worked out what how to differentiate xeno feminism from other iterations of cyber feminism but it's obviously a powerful contribution interesting stuff and there's a couple of things implied on the one hand there's there's a general feminist agenda of simply not accepting that technology is a domain of male power and uh, and can only be that there's also a fundamental set of meditations on the nature of the human. So I, I think Haraway's ideas are very close to the ideas of people like Bernard Stiegler and other people who who point out that, well, actually, look, in some, on, in some ways, technology and culture are just the same thing. And... Actually, what it means to be human is to be a cyborg. It is to be part. Is to, it is to be dependent on pr- prostheses, as Stiegler puts it. It is that you have to go back into our evolutionary history to pre-human ancestors before you find beings who are not dependent upon tool use and cr- some form of textiles just to be able to survive the environment on planet Earth. So, from that point of view. What it means to be human, or whatever your gender, in some ways, is to always already be a cyborg, to be in a mediated, technologized relationship with the rest of the world. That's what makes us what we are. And so from that point of view, primitivism isn't even really sort of very useful on its own terms, Like it, at least insofar as it's appealing to any notion of the organic human. So as people interested in, you know, AC themes, acid communism, psychedelic socialism, acid Corbinism. we've always been interested in this idea of technologies of the self. And that's a term from Michel Foucault. But by technologies of the self, he really means any sort of collection of techniques like psychological, physical, institutional, which enable people to constitute themselves, to create themselves or to change themselves. So from that point of view, A technology of the self might be like psychology, psychotherapy, but it might also be yoga or martial arts. Like it might be any assemblage, any collection of techniques that might or might not involve machinery of some kind that sort of helps make you what you are and I think a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the show is the technology of the self Mm -hmm. so exercise for example a lot of these are forms of exercise and when we talk about exercise drugs I mean I suppose one of the problems with the notion of technology of the self is when you start thinking about it it's not clear what isn't a technology of the self because sort of food is bound up with technologies of the self and
2: but it's it's not it's non-instinct isn't it that's what that that's what separates I think there's something there that separates it out Mm -hmm. is it's an assemblage of all of these different techniques and it requires some kind of intent consciousness and intelligence to put them together in an organized practice
0: yeah exactly
2: of of some sort otherwise it's 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 not it's not reactive
0: exactly and i get i guess our usual point about this is that neoliberalism and whatever kind of post neoliberal capitalism we're in now it it it's very much promotes technologies of the self of a kind which enforce a sense of p- the private self and private life as being the, the site of authentic experience i think that's the thing isn't it
2: but it could be also read as 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 co-option and the building of these kind of like coping mechanisms of yeah. self-help and how yeah. that fits in late capitalism, which is different. I think that's that's a, a reading or a version of, but not necessarily the, just the core of what a technology of the self could be.
1: Well, like when, when Foucault's writing as well, I suppose he's writing just at that moment where this the introduction of new technologies of the self or experiments of new technologies of the self, you know, around the counterculture in the 1960s and 70s, these sorts of technologies, they start to turn inwards and be much more focused on a, a more inward looking uh, version of the self. So they, turn, they turn into things such as the self-esteem movement and Est and these sorts of things. And so he's sort of sensing this this movement, this sort of the way that these countercultural things are going to go and feed into this movement towards individualism, I suppose. Something which really, really is reinforced by by neoliberalism.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Foucault's own early writing on this subject is really, it's its quite ambivalent and there's a lot of disagreement over how to read it because he's really, he had been writing about things like the history of the Christian idea of confession and how that leads into psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Uh, and one of Foucault's things was always, basically getting into polemics against psychoanalysis like he really didn't like the freudians so the idea that actually the the psychoanalyst is just a direct descendant of the father confessor is a sort of a way of having a pop at them for him but then he's also at the time when he's developing this idea of technologies of the self he's writing this stuff around the history of sexuality and he's got he's got really excited about the idea that the ancient greeks had all these very different attitudes to sexuality which, which might be much less repressive than sort of Christian derived attitudes. I've got to say, he, he's, he does a really, he's very unpersuasive. It's very unpersuasive that Athenian culture is not very, very oppressive to everyone apart from the tiny handful of aristocrats who he's actually right talking about. But um, how nonetheless. How
2: does this stuff, I mean, how does this stuff intersect with? I mean, this might be a really big topic, but inter- intersect with Stoicism. I was just trying to think. Yeah, no, well,
0: Stoicism is one, I think in the second book in the history of sexuality, the second or third, right? and he is really interested in the fact that Stoicism and the way in which Stoicism promotes a kind of self-monitoring and a kind of constant attention to the self and a desire to control the self, but also a belief that the self can be improved. He sees that as a really interesting kind of staging post towards the Christian idea of the self as as having this kind of, this immortal soul that you're constantly cultivating. But I think he also suggests or implies that, well, it could have gone a different way. And and in the same way, I think this is, comes back to Keir's point. I think his whole point, what he's really responding to, and he doesn't really know a lot of the time you know where it's all going. He's responding to the sense that, indeed, in the seventies, there's all this opening up of new ways of being in the world. You know, there's everything from the jogging movement to the popularisation of yoga to new drugs to to gay people coming out. You know, and sort of casual sex in bathhouses. There's all this this new kind of dancing. There's all this this, this vast proliferation of lifestyles and new techniques for being in the world. And they and they could go all, all kinds of different ways. You know, we could have been on the cusp of a culture which was just fantastically inventive and liberated and and emancipated which is what the counterculture was dreaming of or we could have been on the cusp of a culture in which we were just presented with countless new ways to become neurotic to kind of constantly monitor ourselves and to compete with each other and it at the time when he's writing like Keir said it's not clear which of those is going to emerge and maybe it's still not clear I mean I, I would tend to take the view that. Well, to some extent, all of those things are true. Like it's true, as we all know, that we've ended up in a world in which hegemonic neoliberalism will tend to try to co-opt all technologies of the self to its own ends. But it is also a a world where, you know, you can go and learn yoga or you can go and or you can play football or you can talk to your mate on the other side of the planet in, in new kinds of ways, which shouldn't be entirely dismissed as just features of capitalist culture. So Nadia found this track and suggested it, even though this is a group that from where I grew up and I grew up in various places, but mostly in West Lancashire. And this is the Horton Weavers, who are a, a folk group formed in the 70s from Bolton. But Nadi, you just found the song randomly looking for songs about... Yeah, like...
2: because I wanted to put something in that had an aesthetic that wasn't electronic and technological yeah. and hard and metallic. And we were we we're talking about and thinking about, both in the interview with Catherine and in this episode, about the different kinds of technology. So I wanted something associated with weaving. And I found this um, traditional song, which, which I really like the sound of. So I thought we'd put that in
0: yeah well that, i mean that was fantastic you know because i you know horton weavers were a big folk act in lancashire where i grew up you know i remember my parents and their friends going to see the horton weavers and i remember this song the song of their weavers was their big anthem and it celebrates the weaving industry the the textile industry in lancashire which has a good claim to be the birthplace of the global socialist movement frankly and That was the culture, of the political culture that grew up in the factories of Lancashire in the automated and semi-automated industrial textile factories which sort of replaced uh, the earlier weaving industry which was the thing that the Luddites were protesting against. And the weaving industry in Lancashire was still a really big part of the British economy until the mid-20th century or really through to the 60s. And interestingly, given some of our themes today, the weaving industry was one of the few sectors of the British industrial economy where by the end of the 19th century, women had managed to win equal pay. You know, Women had managed to organise, and women had been recognised partly because it was recognised that this was a manually skilled job but not one that required physical strength, like operating the big industrial looms, and partly because there was a long tradition of militant organisation anyway. And it was one of the great historic centres of militancy, you know the Lancashire cotton mills going back to the late 19th century had acted in solidarity with the uh, the union side during the civil the American Civil War in solidarity with Gandhi's Indian uh, independence movement in the early 20th century. Despite the fact that in all of those cases it was costing them kind of jobs and business, you know the, the British cotton industry and you know, it was still really part of the ambient culture when I was growing up in Lancashire. It was still the part, you know, it's easy to romanticise those regions. And of course, in Lancashire where I grew up, as in south wales you know where keir grew up there were always plenty of tories knocking around especially in the affluent suburbs but nonetheless it was the case like in lancashire for example that well there was a much higher chance than if you'd grown up say in the home counties that somebody's some somebody's nan somebody's grandmother might well have been like a a weaver and would have some sense of socialism as being part of the sort of political culture they belonged to and it very much formed part of the general ambient atmosphere of the region, the sense that socialist ideas were just more normal for people and more familiar than they would be in many other regions of the world. And that was largely the legacy of the Weavers. Of course, that's partly why a band calling themselves the Horton Weavers singing songs about weaving became really popular mostly with public sector workers in the 70s professional public sector workers in the 70s and 80s there weren't any weavers left by then and if there were they were probably listening to Northern Soul rather than the Horton Weavers
1: When trade is low, the looms move slow, there's not much cloth to be made. King Cotton is sad for the working lad, for he'll starve at the weaving trade. When the shuttle goes click, the looms move quick, there's plenty of cloth to be made. King Cotton is glad for the working lad, for there's brass in the weaving trade.
2: My final point would be that technological development should lead us to a space where you can automate a lot of things, but you won't be able to automate care and affection and things like that. And I think especially when it comes to caring in society, those should be the most highest paid jobs.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture, and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarromedia.com forward slash
2: support.